This is Memorial Day weekend, and it's a weekend of celebrating, remembering, of course, those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. It's a weekend of travel, obviously. You look around, it's a weekend of picnics and cookouts, and it's been a week of graduations. People have celebrated, and we've seen the pictures, and some attended wonderful celebrations of that important milestone of graduation. And yet, uh, despite, despite all that, it's been a sad week in so many ways. A week ago today was the release of the report from the outside investigative uh, group, uh, re- the report on abuse within uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and we're going to get to that in a moment. In addition to that, of course, there's the ongoing uh, war, the senseless invasion of uh, Ukraine. Uh, In Uvalde, Texas, of course, the murder of 19 children and two adults, and we were still reeling when we heard that news from the the racially motivated murder of 10 people in Buffalo, New York, people just grocery shopping. And then many, besides the national uh, sadness, there are Lots of people who carry a heavy burden because of personal or private pain. So we're going to look today, if you have your Bibles, to Psalm 71 for some uh, comfort. Psalm 71, if you'll find it, we'll read it in just a few, a few minutes. While you're finding that, let me call your attention to a couple of ministries offered by our church. One is Stephen Ministry. It's a one-on-one confidential a relationship in which people walk alongside you during a particularly difficult portion of life's journey. It might be the loss of a spouse, the loss of a job, the loss of a marriage. It could be um, the loss of a dream. Whatever is that particular difficulty that, it, again, confidential, one-on-one, these people are trained, volunteers, uh, trained by Stephen Ministry to, uh, to walk with you. There's, uh, there's information in your bulletin about that, as well as Grief Share. Grief Share is a support group, a video-driven support group, lasts 13 weeks. The next one begins uh, the first Tuesday of August, and uh, it's, uh, it's um, for people and among people who've lost uh, those close to them, and I recommend them both. Now, some of you, uh, like me, were at the Kenny Chesney concert. Uh, anybody else in the Kenny Chesney? I see y'all in your cowboy hats and your cowboy boots, some of you. One of these days, Kenny Chesney will be in the Country Music Hall of Fame. The Country Music Hall of Fame is a big deal. But on the eve of her induction to the Country Music Hall of Fame, Naomi Judd felt pain so dark and so deep that she took her own life. She had been very public about her struggles with anxiety and depression and about her faith. She once said, I love the Lord, my family, and my fans. But she suffered a pain that is unimaginable for most of us and inexplicable by by all of us. And and she must have felt the only way out uh, was to end her life. She suffered from depression and an illness just like that illness that I suffered from a few months ago, arthritis in my knee. But you know, when you have arthritis in your knee, there's a fix for that. They put an artificial one in there, but there's no, there's no such fix for depression. Depression is not so easily treated. Sometimes depression may be of a, because of a chemical imbalance. Sometimes depression is, is exacerbated and complicated by a traumatic event. Such seems to be the case with Naomi Judd. 
When Naomi Judd was 22 years old, she already had two little girls. Her ex-boyfriend broke into uh, their house. Uh, He beat her and he raped her. And it was so traumatic, of course, that she she was devastated. She moved back to Kentucky where they they were poor. They lived on government assistance while she looked for it, while she trained to be a, a nurse. Her depression was made worse by by abuse. According to the National Sexual Violence Resource Center in the U.S., one in three women experience some sort of sexual uh, contact, sexual violence in their lifetimes. Sometimes that abuse is from a boss. Sometimes it's from a date or a husband. Sometimes it's from a stranger. Sometimes it's from a family member. And we, rem- we, we remembered this week that sometimes... Sometimes it's even from a church leader, and sometimes even from a minister. You probably saw the story last Sunday. It broke Sunday afternoon. By Sunday night was a national story. By Monday was on every news source known to humankind. Guidepost Solutions, an outside independent uh, company, organization, had had done a study of the Southern Baptist Convention and all the, the charges of abuse. And the report began with this sentence. For almost two decades, survivors of abuse and other concerned Southern Baptists have been contacting the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee to report child molesters and other abusers who were in the pulpit or employed as church staff. What followed was a report that is, that is more than disheartening Efforts by some denominational leaders uh, to to cover up these stories of abuse. Uh, Some denominational leaders more concerned about litigation and reputation than they were about the the victims. And and even some uh, leaders at the highest levels, uh, perpetrators themselves. People who put others at risk because of their unwillingness to deal with the problem. Guidepost Solutions suggested some structural changes, which will be good, I'm sure. They suggested some new policies, which will be good, I'm sure. And it's true that as of, last, uh, as of this week, there's some people appropriately unemployed, which is good. But the problem is, more, is with more than structure and personnel. We have a cultural problem. Southern Baptists, the people who provided Sunday school literature for me when I was a child who funded my theological education, who supported me for seven years when I was a missionary, have a cultural problem that I believe fostered this this scandal of abuse that we're now learning about. I'm talking about a a hyper-patriarchal, male-dominated, men-are-supposed-to-be-leaders culture. Whenever women are less than men in any way, then the cries of women are easily dismissed. I said here two years ago, standing right here, that there's a, a dark side to this teaching of of male hierarchy, that you, if you combine a man who is who, who's not sure about his manhood and who wants to prove to himself and to others that he's macho, 
Combine that with the teaching of male leadership and a preacher, and there are more and more of them who like to preach about how men are the leaders. Then you have a culture that fosters this, this awful story that we're, we've been hearing about for a week. It's not everywhere and it's not everybody, but it's growing and it's a uh, I've just got to say it. We've got a cultural problem. Now, why talk about this on Sunday morning? Because following the release of the story last Sunday, I received a note from an anonymous lady in our church who agreed for me to share. A lady in our church who was abused in another church by a lay leader, not this one, and I don't know which one or where it was. But when I shared it with our leadership council on Wednesday night, we agreed that I should at least speak to it this morning, this problem. Here is part of her note. My heart is heavy and exhausted. I beg you to remember there are countless others just like me that worship in your church. I've sat in a room with many recounting our abuse as women at the hands of the church, not this one, but others. Whether it be stories like mine or stories like several friends who had youth pastors or Christian camp, camp counselors that had extremely poor intentions. We are all members of your church. We find that First Baptist has been a safe place to call home where we would be valued and loved. I beg you to also see us not as a survivor community that's trying to burn things to the ground. That's how survivors were characterized by some Southern Baptist leaders but as people who absolutely love the church and love God. I plea with you not to forget us as you make your decisions going forward on how to address this, because many of us have already been forgotten or actively ignored so many times before. With respect and love for the church, a parishioner with a heavy heart. I am so sorry, and I'm so glad we're on television today. Because I want to say that not just to us, but to the community. I'm sorry that there are men who, who said they speak and act for God himself, who have used their positions uh, to abuse people. I'm sorry that thousands of churches like ours have paid the salaries of people at the highest levels who have either been guilty or who have covered up and put other victims in danger. I'm afraid my apology will fall on to cynical ears, and I would understand that. But I mean it with all my heart. People have asked, what should we do as a church? People have asked specifically, should we cut ties with the Southern Baptist Convention? Should we de you know, disassociate ourselves? Well, let me remind you how things work at First Baptist Church of Huntsville. 12% of what you give to the church goes back out in what we call missions. And there are three ways. So the first 2% of what you give goes to what we call FBC, or First Baptist Church Missions. And, and that goes for local and national and international ministries. And then the, the next 10%, you decide where it goes. When you fill out your envelope and check and all, you decide where that other 10% goes. And it can go to First Baptist Church Missions, which means all 12% of your money would go there. Or you can give to the Southern Baptist Convention or the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And when you do 
Cooperative Baptist Fellowship or Southern Baptist Convention, those dollars go to seminaries and missionaries and such. So the truth is that, that you decide that you vote with your pocketbook, if you will, uh, where you, your own convictions and where you want your missions dollars uh, to go. So, so the decision is not so much ours as it is, as it is yours. Here at FBC, I have often affirmed our commitment to both the safety and the dignity of women and children. Years ago, proactively, not in response to some incident, but proactively, because it was the right thing, we instituted policies of safekeeping and we adhere to them faithfully. When we are hiring ministers, we do extensive background checks, criminal background checks, even financial background checks. And your ministers are people with integrity who understand boundaries. We've consulted with professionals who've helped us figure out how to keep people safe, including, of course, background checks for all ministers, which we renew regularly, and for everybody who works with students and children, regular recurring background checks. Uh, I'm proud of the culture here, uh, and I'm proud uh, to say I, I believe you can trust the culture here. You thought I forgot Psalm 71, didn't you? Look at that, please. We're going to read, begin at verse 20. And by the way, I, I choose these texts and the themes weeks in advance so that, that Mark, weeks ago, saw that I was going to preach from Psalm 71, and the title was A Psalm for the Vulnerable. I prepared it. I prepared a different sermon, but it was just as if this text were written and they, even the title, A Psalm for the Vulnerable, as if it were planned just for today. Maybe the Spirit of God uh, is in control after all. Verse 20. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have redeemed. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. For those who wanted to harm me, for those who wanted to harm me, have been put to shame and confusion. In light of the stories of abuse, I was struck By the words of this psalm, you will restore my life again. You will bring me up. I whom you have delivered will tell of your acts of righteousness for those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. Some time ago, I mentioned here a a powerful book, Sins of a Father by Kitty Chappell. It's it's a hard book to read. The stories of abuse are just, well, you have to walk away every once in a while. But it's important for a number of reasons. For one thing, it tells about the difference between a survivor and an overcomer. A survivor is one who moves on, who, who is able to live life and, and yet is always haunted, is always followed by the dark cloud of, of pain and memory, and in some cases, shame, even though shame is not appropriate. But an overcomer is one who finds freedom she writes, neither heartache nor tragedy will ever again hold them 
prisoner. You can be an overcomer. Whether your, whether your pain is the result of abuse or depression or the loss of a dream or the loss of a job or the loss of someone you love, you don't have to just be a survivor. You can be an overcomer, and people who are overcomers are people of hope. David, who wrote this psalm under the shadow of terrible family crisis, with enemies doing everything they could to undo him, suffering himself from despondency and depression, writes, You, Lord, are my hope. Verses 5 and 6, had we backed up that far, he says, You have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth, my hope. Carrie and I had our two grandsons, Camden and Beckett, here last weekend. They were here for five nights, five long nights. Anyway, we, we, um, their mom and dad had gone to the beach for a getaway, just the two of them. So we had Camden and Beckett. So we had prayer time with them at night before they'd go to sleep, and then we'd pray for meals, of course, thank God. And both of them have a, a pattern of praying, and this is it. Dear God, I hope. So it's like, dear God, I hope we have a good day tomorrow. Uh, dear God, I hope Papa sees me, feels better. They've been praying for that for weeks, my daughter says, and our daughter says. And, and then there was one when uh, one of them said, uh, prayed, Dear God, uh, I hope we have a good breakfast tomorrow, which probably was a reflection on the previous uh, breakfast. <laughs> one of them prayed, Dear God, uh, I hope Mommy and Daddy have fun at the beach. I sensed a little resentment in, uh, in that prayer. But it's, Dear God, I hope this and I hope that. Both of them, entire prayer. Dear God, I hope, I hope, I hope. So I've thought about correcting their prayer, you know, like you should. But then I thought they're five and three. And when you think about it, the hope really is at the core of, of our faith. Not the kind of hope that throws a penny in the well and, and hopes that our wish comes true, but hope, which is the, the bibl biblical hope, is the deep conviction that at the core of who I am, I'm going to be okay. Even if things don't turn out like I hope they will, e even if every, my dreams don't come true, that God is so powerful and so good that by His grace and strength, at the core of who I am, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to be okay. That is hope. David, with all his family problems and enemy problems and his, his mental problems, was a person of hope. He prayed, you are my hope. Christian hope is tenacious. It will not succumb. It will not surrender. It will not give up. It will not give in. Not to fears, not to failures, not to troubles, not to trials, and not to people who would abuse us. Christian hope is tenacious. Christian hope turns victims into overcomers. David prayed, Lord, you are my hope, my deep assurance that at the core of who I am, I will be okay. And David also looks forward to a to a better day. Psalm 71, verse 20, we read a moment ago. You will restore my life again from the depths of the earth. You will again bring me up. David had been laid low by scandal within his home, 
by the attempt of his sons to unseat him from his throne. David had been laid low by political and military enemies. David had been laid low by his own struggle with despondency. But he looked forward to a day when the creator of the universe would would lift him up. Carrie, my wife, a, a few weeks ago had hip replacement. I know what you're thinking. She's way too young for hip replacement. I agree. 39 is way too young for a hip replacement. But she got her one, and they called me back at the, after she was, had come out of surgery. She was in recovery. And um, I got to tell you, that was, that was not easy to see her like that. This strong lady who has carried me on her shoulders for almost four decades, this strong lady who, was, who looked so fragile, trembling a bit, I, I think coming out of anesthesia perhaps. She looked so weak, so frail. My eyes welled up at her frailness. And then this guy walks in with a badge that says physical therapy. And he says, Miss Collins, let's take a walk. And I say, she's not ready for that. Based on all my years in medical school studying orthopedics and physical therapy, I say she's not ready for that. It's as if he had heard that before. And he said... She'll be all right, and I'll hold on to her. Still trembling a bit. Still weak. And still fragile. He helped her out of bed. And she put her feet on the floor. And she walked. Not fast and not far, and not without his gentle hand supporting her, she walked. And she walks still. Amazing thing. And you may feel frail and fragile and worn out and beaten up. But you can walk again. You may have been laid low by abuse, by depression, by loss. But Christian hope is tenacious and does not succumb and does not surrender and does not give up and does not give in. I never want to be trite or simplistic. And I never want to overpromise. But with all the confidence in the world, I offer you hope. Not like in a wishing well, 
but the deep assurance that by God's grace and strength, at the core of who you are, you're going to be okay. Okay.